Gonna have a real good time together We're gonna have a real good time together We're gonna laugh the child together Have a real good time together Hello. Hello. It's Evan. And Ian. It's Jokerman. That's right. Here we are again. It's Jokerman Classic. It's, uh, this is a kind of a, an important Jokerman Classic in a way, just because it's, a, in a way, a retrospective. Classic in many ways. Exactly, yeah. Classic, classic mono mono classic subject, John Cale, John Davies Cale, and classic music from John Davies Cale. Presented classically. That's in right. In a classic way. That's a um, great point. He's being a classic man. We're being classic men. There's trouble with the classicists. Yeah, I, I hear. Uh, I'm trying to remember a single other lyric from "Classic Man" <laughs> by by Jadena, a song that had its hands on the throat of culture for all of what 2014, <laughs> something like that. That and um and Trap Queen. Do you remember that time? Trap when Queen it was, was good. It was yeah, just yeah. Trap Fetty, Queen and Fetty Wap and Classic Man. Trap Queen was good. They were both good. Classic Man was not good, but Trap Queen was legit good. Classic Man was too good to exist. Yeah, that was like Jason Derulo kind of sounded music. (laughs) Where is he? Anyway, (sighs) we didn't mean to talk about... I didn't. That's not the subject of Joker Podcast (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) No. Uh no we're here uh yeah we're here to talk uh our first John John proper John record in in quite some time actually um the, we we did our first just proper Lou uh uh a record the other day with uh, Magic and Loss and here we are uh, uh hooking back up with John just John no Brian this time uh it's uh it's the man alone on stage performing some of his very best material uh and it's uh you know it's i think it's good good timing we it's it's been about a year since we started this whole journey can you believe it yeah i can (laughs) i think it feels like a year (laughs) doesn't it i don't know i mean it feels uh it feels like it's gone i feel like this last year has gone quick uh, uh is what i would say maybe it's because the show has kind of grown and expanded so much in this past year it's true like this time last year we had we hadn't done any John or Lou stuff. We hadn't done any sort of David Berman or Silva Jew stuff. We hadn't done any Scott Walker stuff. We hadn't done any um, Steely Dan stuff. Girls stuff. We had done a couple Steely Dan things, well, but um, tangential. We did the solo work. Um, well, we did the late. The late we had done. Um, oh yeah, I guess we uh, had two against nature, <laughs> and we did. It's Night funny Club. that, but yeah. That was like our first band after, and we had done some Van, but uh, yeah, it was that yeah. and Van. Remember, it was Joker Van, Joker Dan. That was yeah, the, uh, yeah, the genesis. Of now that. it's all just Jokerman. It's all under the the banner of Jokerman. That's right. Um, Never ending stories. Yeah, it's all yeah. The, the multimedia empire is really uh, is, is expanding. <laughs> um, but we're gonna 
what's the opposite of expand tonight? Um, Con- contract. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is the, the night of the contracting man. Because um, <laughs> we're just going back to familiar territory. I think that this album is really great and special. And I think it's one of my favorite things that John Cale has put out because it's such a uh, exhaustive triplicate esque in its presentation mm. uh, sort of um, omnibus uh, this this sort of treasure trove very elegantly packaged simply executed yes with, which it's just all his songs and it's the songs given a sort of very dignified and proper treatment in one place i, I love that, that that it's that way that's right uh this album of course fragments of a rainy season john Cale, 1992 although i think we'll be discussing the expanded and re-released yeah. version the thing that's on the streaming uh stuff that's easy for everyone to listen to here tonight i am looking but, though at the original track list and i kind of prefer it in a way well, I mean, it's the same 20 songs. Uh, they, they were just reordered on this expanded released thing. And then there were an additional, I think, eight outtakes tacked on at the end. So you have all the same material there in those first 20. It's just a different ordering, um, which is interesting to think about. I don't really know why they played around with that, particularly because of some of the early sequencing on this latest uh this latest newer version here, but yes, yeah, I mean it's it is a very dis, uh, distinguished, dignified package. Listening to it has been very fun to me because I've just been like kind of letting it go in the background. You know, I've been I'm I'm moving right now, um, and so I've been doing some packing and you know, organizing, and just listening to this, it's like man, it's just hit after hit after hit. It's all my favorites, just yeah. all lined up right in a row. It's it's so good. I think that um, what's so interesting and novel about this record is the you know semi radical reinterpretation of some of these classic John Cale songs that we know and love, uh, you know all your favorite characters. Um, that uh, when he just does them alone on the piano here, um, you know it's a pretty wild um, uh, uh, new vision of these songs. You know some of them more than others, but the Dylan Thomas stuff. Um, Cordoba a little less so, I would say, but the Dylan Thomas stuff definitely is just a little bit closer to what we knew, right, on onwards for the dying. It's not as dramatic yeah. a reinterpretation of what he was right. doing. And so that's some of the I, novelty factor is kind of lost. You're getting a, a sort of facsimile of the experience of listening to the record by having the beginning of this podcast be boring and kind of uh, <laughs> us just talking about something that you already know. That's right. Um, so let's just get into the, the good shit. I mean, the original one, I, mean, I, I just got those two lists mixed up, but the original just starts with Child's Christmas in Wales, Dying on the Vine, uh, and then there's Cordoba. But um, yeah. what we have here is uh, On a Wedding Anniversary, Lie still, sleep, be calmed. Do not go gentle into that good night. Cordoba. And then once you've gotten through those, which are very good on their own. I mean, let's be clear. The do not I, go gentle is a is a is an absolute banger. I mean, that is like it's I'd really love to hear the kind of simplified, right? Like boiled down version here because it's missing some of the children's choir shit and the strings and stuff from the original version. It's still just that really propulsive kind of up and down piano scale that he's doing. Um, yeah. 
and uh, the lyrics are delivered with all the same gravitas, although it's just him. It's I really like I really like to hear that kind of simplified version. But yeah, the first two on a wedding anniversary and lie still asleep be calmed. It you know it's it's good to hear, but it's not uh, not revelatory. I think. Yeah, I agree about do not go gentle. It's also um, I mean the the thing about that is that it. I think the thing about the uh, the execution of these all being just solo piano for the most part, uh, it draws your attention to the the melodic sensibilities that are common. The thing, the style, really, uh, and the approach on a broader level that is similar or has kind of cousins from song to song um, throughout his discography. And Do Not Go Gentle is one of those moments where you, I, it's very charming to hear because I think you can detect little touches and attitudes in the way he's playing it that pop up in other performances of songs you might know a lot better um, sure. later on. Right, and songs that you've heard in very different you know, iterations in the past, whether you know, it's the live LP version or uh, other live albums, or if you, you know, were lucky enough to see him actually play live in, this, in that time. I've, I've been wondering, and you know, be interested to hear what you have to say about his decision to present all this shit just in this very stark, classical, straightforward kind of manner, just himself alone on the piano. The you know the the hockey mask is gone. The sicko uh, um, uh, guitar shredding. The screaming is here. You know, in in uh, in a few like select occasions, but he's really kind of calmed down and mellowed a little bit. Um, it's an it's an interesting decision to. Uh, decide this is what he's going to be doing as a live performing artist after a very a very different uh, uh, approach to live music the preceding 10, 15, 20 years. I think it it goes directly to where we left off with him on um, his last solo effort, which was uh, Words for the Dying, where the end of that movie of Words for the Dying has him seemingly kind of at a crossroads uh, creatively. Um, he doesn't really know... Uh, what he's doing it seems um he's experimenting with being not so experimental um so to speak one could say he's like you know going back to the classical music that he initially began his musical interest around um so i actually think it's a perfect solution to that kind of identity crisis that we sort of talked about um and it seems like he just is back on his feet immediately and it's such an obvious answer is just perform my songs with a sort of classical uh unadorned approach and just let the chips fall where they may like let these songs just be and i think that anybody listening to this it finds that the songs have more than enough to them to sustain um to bring out more than you might think could come out of just a guy in a piano um, oh, absolutely. So it, there was never an issue, really. He never had real reason to worry as a creative artist. Uh, um, it, it, it's just the confidence. It's, you know, literally him wearing a mask early, early on is the opposite of this. This is him um, seeming to be in, comma- in command of himself and, and in a good place with his feelings about his own work and it's very heartening to see him perform them um perform song like guts just Mm. on the piano it's like very um it feels really like vindicating or like gratifying like 
yeah, this does deserve to like the concert treatment. The bubble in the short sleeves went his wife. Did it quick and split back home. Fresh as a daisy to Maisie. In the classical sense, like absolutely, yeah, you should like, be playing that in a fucking at Walt symphony Disney concert, symphony hall, hall yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, like uh, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, this is a, a great, you know, kind of back to basics move for him, and an interesting kind of uh, uh, rhyme with like Bob going back to basics at the same time, right? Because '92 is as good as I've been. Because I've you. been to you, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's it, they're doing it in very different ways um, and coming from very different places, but it seems like that. You know, that that kind of urge was present in this uh, sub subsection of the lineage of rock musicians. I, I was reading a little bit in his uh, in his book in, in What's Welsh for Zen, you know, trying to figure out where his head was at on this. He devotes in one single paragraph to this entire record uh, and just said, you know, um, uh, I was for many years living adequately from the fruits of my solo tours. Several several were recorded and a compilation album released. It was a format that suited me well. It allowed for the exercise of many techniques I had garnered through viola performances along the way. Not very insightful. He does, however, spend like five pages discussing his other creative uh, uh, direction at this moment in time. Were you aware of, of the other kind of artistic direction John Cale was, was pursuing in 1990, 1991? I was not. This is not a trick question. Well, maybe. What, what was it? What do you mean? <laughs> John, John Cale was a fashion model. He was oh. walking for Comme de Garçon yeah. and Yoji Yamamoto in 1990 Yama- okay. and 1991. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a real focused pursuit. I, d- I knew the, of the existence of that. He and- was very, in, like, uh, it, it's, I encourage it. I'm not going to quote it extensively. I, we shared the book. It's on Patreon. So if anyone wants to read it, you know, go dig that up or subscribe if you haven't. Uh, but yes, he uh, he was very taken with his experience as a fashion model at this time, it seems. And I even dug up, I don't know if you've seen this picture before, we'll make sure to post this online somewhere, but I even dug up this delightful little glimpse. Yes, I have John. seen that one. That's him, um, <laughs> look at his I think face. The, look that's Comedy Garçon, right? 90, yeah. 1990, yeah. yeah. He looks look so happy. happy he is. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, so he, thrilled. Well, it is It is an interesting angle, um, fashion. Uh, he's uh, got his little newsboy cap. We don't talk too much about fashion on the on the show, but um, yeah. John Cale, fashion icon. Well, we actually did recently talk about John Cale's fashion uh, tendencies because of that that photo of him wearing hood by yeah, air. just on the last episode, exactly. And that was like in the 2015 or something that, that was taken, maybe earlier. Um, he has always had a very good style. Uh, style it takes. Sort of reminiscent of Marky e. Smith in a way, where t- he tends to dress down. To uh, you know, you don't. I feel really like John's a little more classical and put together than marky smith no matt marky smith is like almost always wearing just like a blazer and a and a tucked in shirt and like doesn't yeah. you know he for most of his career he was just you know not not dressed in any sort of flashy way there's a couple moments where he is in the 80s wearing these kind of really uh weird sort of post-punky garish uh statement pieces and whatever but for the most part, John Cale and Marky e. Smith lean on a sort of tasteful norm core aesthetic, but uh, 
it's it's interesting. I mean, it makes sense that he would be interested in fashion um, through the lens of something like Comme de Garçon, which is like it's it's perfect for him because it's it sort of takes the classical uh, fashion motifs and does something very unconventional with those, um, but still has this very high culture place. So it's like really a perfect analog for him in some way is is like avant-garde fashion houses and walking the runway it, it it's really not a leap at all i'm just delighted that john was out there on the catwalk grinning walking walking right around like Derek zoolander the, the lapels on that coat are maybe not uh uh not not the the choicest fit well there all. it's just uh it's a sort of uh it's an avant-garde uh garment you know they're not a uh these aren't clothes that just anyone can pull off mere mortals can wear yeah they're they're uh as they say you know rare johns or uh whatever no is that what they say (laughs) you know some people say that (laughs) uh well uh that's uh just a delightful little bit of uh trivia that like i said was new to me um, but yes, we're here to talk about the music on Fragments, and on this record, I think it really kind of kicks into gear with track five, again, on the modern, new, re-sequenced version of this record, Buffalo Ballet. This is an European vision of the Old West, it's Buffalo Ballet. When Abilene was young and gay, and thunderstorms filled up the day. The cattle roam outside the town Sleeping in the midday sun Sleeping in the midday sun Sleeping in the midday sun Sleeping in the midday sun, the midday sun. I mean, yeah, come on. Um, probably one of the great, the great songs of all time. Absolutely. I mean, we said that when it, we first talked about it, but it stayed that way for me. I just when it, whenever I hear it, it's pretty much just comes across as a masterpiece song. So 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 good. I mean, it's um, and this is one of the maybe less extraordinary reworkings on this record because it already is like pretty spare, pretty Spartan on fear. Um, it's a little, you know, kind of gussied up a little bit more, but, um, this is, plays it pretty true. Melody's pretty straight. Uh, but just the investment that he's got, like, vocally, right, and, and able to accompany himself on the piano, it's so, I mean, it's, I think it's very easy for artists, especially legacy artists, to, at a certain point, phone it in on classic tracks, or not even, not even that Buffalo Ballet is like a classic track that everyone in the world is going to know. But it is to him. But yeah, it is within his little discography. Um, it's just, it's great to hear him still this kind of connected with his own material two decades in, uh, you know, two decades on from having written this song and put it out, and especially, you know, after that period of time in the mid-late 80s when he was like, I'm just done with rock songs in general. Yeah. Um, that he was able to find his way back to it. And it's just that immediate and that easy and that like riding a bike, you know, uh, it seems like he never forgot how to recite and interpret material like this. Well, it's, it's also, it's a perfect sort of vehicle or like the, the challenge that just doing it alone on the piano presents 
it, he cannot help but try to match that. I mean, he's just not the type of person who in that situation would be happy with just tossing it off. The fact that it's just him and the piano means that like he's he's clearly aware of the uh, necessity to fill that space with everything he has as a, a vocalist and uh, an interpreter. Uh, there's no way he can fucking just half-ass this. It's in in fact, it seems like this might have been a pretty difficult undertaking in a way because there's moments when he doesn't scream like full out in the way that he he has on other live performances and on record. And I get the sense that the reason that doesn't happen is because it's actually a lot of energy that has to be conserved and worked very strategically to pull this off uh, where he's this present and uh, this uh, loud <laughs> at times and, and just mm. in charge of, of these songs when it's just him. Yeah, you get the sense that, I get the sense at least, that, um, you know, the screaming almost like, again, as much as we love it and as and a signature and element of his sonic palette and, you know, performing toolkit as it is and has been, you get the sense that by this time, like, it, he almost thinks of it as like, a, or it, it feels like more of a cop-out to him, you know, like an easy, like, escape hatch from any song, just kind of go wild and uh and and really you know go big and and bold and that's gonna really wow people in the audience uh and he does like like i said like he does do that a couple times on this record but Far more often, he just he plays it totally straight and recites this stuff as you know simply and classically and and uh, purely as he can. Yeah, purity. And uh, and that to me that does the the material such a great service because it's so it's so fundamentally strong. He doesn't have any sort of rough spots or scabs to cover up with something like the screaming, right? Uh, or the mask like he used to in the past. He can just really lean on his abilities as a musician and the inherent strength of these songs that he wrote, and it's going to come across beautifully. It's like the, the which keeps coming up again and again, we don't need to go to, just like the the thing of Dylan in Don't Look Back playing um, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. It's like, we don't, I don't want to get into the stupid fucking fake Donovan. Oh, in front Donovan, of tran- um, transcoded Donovan. <laughs> You need to. Now I have to explain that there is like some <laughs> it's kind of fine. Like, Who cares? Just, just like an annoying Twitter like discourse that's just people who like, are way too on Twitter. Yeah, I don't think that there was ever a conflict there between Donovan and Dylan in any sort of appreciable way. Um, anyway, what I mean to say though is that that performance that you know it's just Dylan whipping out that song and it's like the song is so great that uh, the, the it doesn't really need much more than. An earn a, a sincere performance of it. It doesn't even have to be like level eleven energy. It just has to be sincere, and I think that that's what he brings to these is just an, a new understanding that the sincerity is the most important thing uh, to make the song uh, really be alive. Hmm. And in the past, I think he definitely. I think he was sincere, but also maybe putting a little bit more 
energy toward the spectacle than just finding this really centered place from which to perform. Sleeping in the midday sun Sleeping in the midday sun He was sleeping in the midday sun Sleeping in the midday sun Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you can really like look at his entire career as a live performing artist up until this point as a progression away from um, fear, you know, pardon the pun, and towards confidence and self-belief. Yeah. Starting with the mask and the like sicko chicken shit uh, psycho behavior on stage. Yeah, cutting a chicken's head off, like literally. Yeah. Exactly. And then into, you know, kind of the, the early mid 80s, you know, he does the the sabotage thing. Uh, in the late 70s and then into the early 80s, you know, um, uh, you know, with the when he's doing more of the solo kind of piano stuff, but really kind of going big with the um, also uh, with way the, on drugs, just like, yeah, uh, yeah, which and, you know, and, and that's it too. That informs it exactly, and um, you know that's sort of a step down from the masking situation. But I don't know. Uh, but it's, he's it might still be even, not. It's a step even lower. It's a, there's a nihilism to his earlier performance, which. I don't know how to, I think of it as being nihilistic in a way, but also very sincere in that I think he's kind of throwing himself all onto the floor in this like abject heap that he knows has a dramatic purpose or a a dramatic effect that he's maybe not totally in control of, but he's willing, and it says a lot about him as an artist, that he's willing to go that far and kind of make himself abject in that way. but. That's just not sustainable. Like that's, there's a reason why you're not. He's not. You know, fucking, Gigi Allen. Like it's because that's not really the whole picture. That's that's a a technique you can use, and it has its shelf life. Right. Yeah. He is. He is. I think evolved into a mature performing personality at this point. You know what he always was and what he always deserved to view himself as. Um, but uh, on his own, maybe didn't feel like he was capable of after his uh, unceremonious ejection from the Velvets all those years before. Um, Child's Christmas in Wales, Darling, I Need You, Guts. I mean, he's just, he's just reeling them off here. Yeah. These, these, those three are, are all just great. Like those are great performances. I love this version of Child's Christmas in Wales. I really like this version of Darling, I Need You. I still do not understand in what way the song is about religious awakening in the, <laughs> in the American, American South. South. This next song is about religious awakening in the, in the southern part of the United States. It's Darling, I Need You. I get the American South part. I'm not really sure unless the whole song is about Jesus, but it's like, uh, uh, it seems like I, I'm always missing some important piece about what the fuck that song's about. Guts, at this point, he changes the uh, the line. Bugger in his short sleeves, fuck, fuck his, his wife. wife. Not, Not mine. Wife. His. Yeah. Not Borat friendly. 
this change. That's right. Yeah. His wife. Yeah. It, you know, and I think that's also probably part of, I think that goes hand in hand with sort of stepping it down as a performing artist yeah, in terms yeah. of like craziness. Like he's the abject the, the, thing. Yeah, exactly. The abjectness of like, him you know, anymore. making that a central piece of his own performance, you know, calling out his own fucking wife <laughs> for cheating on him. Uh, you know, it's a little too much for him at this point, especially considering he's married to uh, Rousse, um at this moment in time. Yeah. Fiction, fictional you, piece of You can't music. say the bugger in short sleeves fuck my wife when your wife is a different woman than your wife used to be. And not this that that song didn't. was <laughs> not also fictional. I mean, it clearly is. It's a fictional work. It's about uh-huh. murdering. Yeah, not inspired by any sort of... Well, it could of, be uh, inspired by, but it's, it was always fictional. It's always... It, th- as far as I understand, Guts is some kind of like... It's like a sort of pathetic knowingly pathetic revenge fantasy i don't know i mean we could use this opportunity to sort of relitigate which songs mean what we think or (laughs) what songs do you kind of felt like they changed the most in your listening experience maybe we could i mean uh i i think that a lot of i mean a lot of this record is composed of the like 70s kind of material right like the island trilogy kind of stuff fear uh yeah. uh slow dazzle and um helen of troy and that i think is the most interesting to listen to because that seems to be the furthest kind of transmutation from the original version and to me i think also it's kind of my favorite my favorite thing uh at least of what we've talked about and really kind of invested in so far from john i think when we started this whole project you know a year ago and we had Lou and we had John. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've like I've kind of waxed and waned like between both of them in terms of which one I feel more closely aligned with or personally invested in at any given mm-hmm. moment. Like when we started, I definitely was like, I'm on I'm on the John wavelength. Like fucking vintage violence, Paris, the Island trilogy, and stuff. Even uh, Anthrax. Like this is my shit. And Lou's early '70s solo material, as we covered in uh in all of those uh episodes at the beginning it was a little inconsistent in terms of quality and even the stuff that's commercially or excuse me critically you know acknowledged as like the heights of the heights transformer and and berlin belatedly belatedly berlin uh (laughs) ended up becoming critically um uh lauded um yeah it's it's not my favorite blue stuff um, but as we moved along and as we've aged, you know, into the eighties and now here we are in the nineties, I think Lou definitely for me in the like 82 to 86 ish era, that blue mask through mistrial run for me is just like golden. Um, and John stuff while fun and interesting, didn't, um, you know, didn't quite hold the same candle to that. So all of which is to say here, you know, in 1992 with uh, with Fragments, it's it's refreshing to me to kind of go back to, again, what of the John material we've talked about so far is really kind of where my where my heart lies. Yeah, I, I think that uh, Lou just develops so much as a a songwriter interested in emotional territory that feels very immediate. And John stays in i mean it's not that he stagnates it's just that he doesn't become less opaque really he finds different things within his 
John world um, that we can pick up on through his evolving music, but it never becomes like as direct as Lou Reed. They're just not the same type of artist. But as someone like Lou, who's that direct, ages and starts to make these songs that are about increasingly dire and uh, relatable and tragic circumstances of life, it's like pretty hard not to feel more um, emotionally connected and and impressed by that. Uh, but it's not even be- the it. It's not even the like really like heavy like dire kind of shit from them because you'll notice I mentioned like eighty two to eighty six there right like that's before like New York is amazing obviously but even that record's a little kind of shaggy and like we talked about on on Magic and Loss also somewhat shaggy and when we're gonna get back into the nineties you know the next proper John solo record Walking on Locust I think is like one of my favorite John records this like easy breezy kind of like all everything's good. Uh, uh, it's all good, you could say, kind of mindset. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I, I think there is something like really exclusively, explicitly about that like kind of mid '80s chunk for Lou, where he's like he seems to be striking the right balance, at, just in terms of purely in terms of what I'm looking for out of the guy, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just that what Lou does is always colored by the the most emotionally heavy thing that he has shown himself to be capable of like once he does something like that, it kind of, if a record has something of that on it, then that kind of like anchors the record. Whereas John just tends not to have anything that's like that um, way. It, it just a little bit more like spread out. Um, if that makes any sense, like the, his approach is just a bit more, um, yeah, like when it's easy and breezy, that's like really it's it's very fun to like just enjoy it on that level. Um then there's something like Music for a New Society, which is, you know, the total opposite. There there's no point on that record that feels easy. Um he kind of is either on or off that mode. Whereas Lou just has a little bit more of like um a sense of like I'm gonna have my emotional core here and then I'm gonna have a lighter song and then it, it's kind of more conventional in that way and not in a bad way, but yeah, no, I, for me, I think Lou's journey as an artist, again, uh, with the caveat just exclusively talking about up to like 92 ish is sort of a journey of like clarifying and simplifying and like, you know, finally uh, figuring out what he's about, what he wants to say and how to say it, how to do it. Yeah. And John's is sort of the opposite process. It, it's, it's sort of a, a process of obscuring. Like he starts off really clear, really strong, really straightforward with violence the couple kind of classical I wouldn't wacko say that anything on violence is straightforward it's just it's rock songs man. yeah but not lyrically but but that's the thing right is that he isn't a clear straightforward here's what's in my heart kind of songwriter right the way that lou reed is right so he has to find ways in his music to access he more accesses those difficult emotions maybe musically more than he does lyrically or or yeah, he, I think he, he, you know, to it's some a, extent, it's, it's certainly a bit more of a time, weird blend for him. Yeah, but I mean, look at the last couple records, it, 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 uh, up and leading up until Fragments, right? Like Caribbean Sunset is all over the place. Tons of weird shit on there. Um, uh, Artificial Intelligence isn't even written by John Cale. He's singing these songs. It's a John Cale solo record, but R- Ratso wrote all the fucking songs. Uh, and then Words for the Dying is this like weird, like semi John solo record with his own couple compositions. Also semi like 
uh, a Dylan Thomas poetry set to classical music and also like kind of a collaboration with Brian Eno. Then you've got Wrong Way Up and Drell, obviously. It's like John as a as an individual, just like expressor of his own kind of thoughts and ideas and emotions in the classical song package. He's he's it's been a, like a decade since he was yeah. able to really do that at this point. You could make a knock against this album as being a sort of uh, victory lap or like or stalling, but I I don't think that's really charitable. Yeah, no, I don't think so at all. Because I mean, it, it, it I mean, it's it's great to listen to just on a purely kind of like you know, I I put I press play and I enjoy what I'm hearing basis. I think John needed this, you know, uh, to sort of chart his way back to becoming a really vital and engaged uh, uh, creative presence as a, you know, you know, a pop song, rock song musician, because he was doing other shit at this time. We talked about the fashion stuff. This is when he really starts to get into film scoring also. Um, so he never gave up entirely by any means, but uh, he needed to find a way back into just playing four minute songs. And everyone has their own way of doing that. Bob does that by going into a little shack on his Malibu property and recording a bunch of folk songs. Uh, yeah. And this is this is John's approach. This episode of Jokerman Podcast is presented by DistroKid. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to distribute their music and get it into all of the places it needs to go. Your Spotify's, your Apple Music's, your YouTube's, your TikTok's, your Tidal's, your Instagram's, and any other streaming service of note. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy. With unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100%, that's right, 100, all of them, folks, of their royalties and earnings. DistroKid comes with tons of great features, including Mixia, which allows DistroKid users to put the finishing touches on their tracks in just minutes, getting a customizable and polished end result that anyone can feel confident in before sharing it with the world. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store to download it today. Battle of Cable Hogue, Leaving It Up to You, Ship of Fools, not in that order. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I just said those backwards. Um, I love the Ship of Fools, uh, you know, reinterpretation here. I like the the acoustic stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, the acoustic parts are some of my favorites. Most of this is on piano, but uh, occasionally John just whips out the old acoustic guitar, such as on Ship of Fools. Ship of Fools, leaving it up to you. Uh, yeah, and leaving it up to you. But Ship of Fools, in particular, I think, is a pretty chain, pretty um, uh, different sound from the original version. This is almost kind of like a campfire sing along type interpretation of it. This is Ship of Fools. The Ship of Fools is coming in. He also does it on Leaving It Up To You and Ballad of Cable Hogue. I don't... Need to hear myself talk about all those songs. Do you want to go? Do you want to go on and on about Cable Hogue again for another five minutes? (laughs) I think just go back. Talk about the movie a little bit. Refer back uh, the (laughs) homoeroticism. Homoeroticism and yeah, the that leaving it up to you is 
as far as anyone can tell, sort of about Charles Manson, MK Ultra. Like, who fucking knows? I love, I love hearing this. Leaving it up to you. It's great. Yeah, it's like listening to this makes you feel. You take a step back, and and you're like, how the fuck? Who? How did you write this song? Like, just somebody <laughs> having a guitar and like sitting down, and most of the time that happens in the world, they play Wonderwall. <laughs> or they, they're just like a guy sitting down, uh, busking, playing fucking maybe, oh, ooh, it's Ziggy Stardust and you're, while you're waiting for the fucking train. And then this guy is just sitting down with the same tool, just an acoustic guitar, and doing this intricate psycho opera about being inside the mind of a murderer and feeling your, your power over the culture diminishing as people catch on to your plot in Hollywood like what the fuck are you it's just crazy looking for a friend looking everywhere to go on down a board the boulevard of friends all of them and the friends have got Like that, him scaling things down to just a guitar is a, a wild reality check about like exactly how far he's gone with with what is John Cale's songwriting, yeah, and what he can do with that. Tanks come crawling over the hill, they're crawling over the hill like rattlesnakes in the desert sun. They're blistering on my spell, they're breaking up. What else is there? What the hell else have I got? What the hell else have I got but that spell? Leaving it, leaving it, leaving it up to you. Leaving it, leaving it, leaving it in the cloakroom of you. Yeah, I mean, it is just, you know, worth noting. It, it's like, it, it's endlessly impressive that he's able to just like do a do a tour like like do performances like this, right? Because um, this is something that uh, very few people kind of lean on. Uh, just the solo, solo, solo music making as a live performing artist. Something that Bob really has like not really ever done, uh, even um, as great of a obviously live performer as he is. Something that Lou also has not really done. Um, but we saw it like with Warren, right? Like on that, that 2000 bootleg we talked about with, what, with learning on, to on flinch. The, end of the show. No, we haven't even talked about learning. To yeah. Flinch. We didn't talk about learning to flinch. Yeah. Which he was doing but at the same is, time too. Uh, um, that, ha- that reminds me, there's certain things on this that remind me a lot of learning to flinch. There's yeah, that absolutely. version of, um, what song is it? Uh, poor, poor, pitiful me that goes into mm. this whole sort of looped, like he he has like a guitar looper thing like a right pedal, with the pedals yeah, but yeah also yeah. just does this rhapsodic extended pseudo classical thing it's very kale like there's the outtake at the end here of uh fear where he goes into Claire de Lune yes. Yeah. 
that that's great. So great. And yeah, sets the whole song. He he goes into Claire de Lune and then also just like continues singing the song to a totally different melody, um, yeah. which I think is other parts of Claire de Lune or something. Um, yeah, that was that's a real wild one. That's like, one of my favorite of things. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I mean, I, we could. Is it okay if we just jump around a little bit on this one? I mean, we could talk about Chinese Envoy. I I just don't have every, everything to say about all of these, but as a whole. This record just has a lot of moments that I think are, it's it's more of something I enjoy listening to, just kind of, I like putting on and listening to, um, without picking one out, usually. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it, not... It's a concert. It's like, well, it's, it's, it's a, a review. It's a series of different, it, like, this isn't just one show that, that was recorded. There is a DVD, tapes. apparently, that was released where it, I think it kind of is... Um, I know that there's a DVD that was all the tracks as they were performed. It says so, um, in the order that they were. So mm. it, it it very well might have been. Oh yeah, sixteen track like, DVD recorded at a certain show in Brussels that features. So the tracks. I think it's like <laughs> one or two shows maybe, but it's it was you know not like so spread out. It seems to be kind of a, a record of. One or two, maybe yeah. performances. Um, Heartbreak Hotel and the Heartbreak Hotel outtake with the John Cage sort of like a horror movie strings, right? These strings that are on this echo and very scary. It's very impressive. I I gotta say I'm a little kind of over Heartbreak Hotel at this point. Uh, not. You know, I, I don't have I don't have anything negative to say about it. It's a masterpiece, you know, particularly the way that he's able to uh to to live in it at this moment in time, um, which is fifteen or twenty years after he even kind of added it to his repertoire. Um it's just uh, you know, it's, it's Yeah, sure. But it, I didn't tell you that I saw Per Ubu recently. He said something like, What what's the most important rock song? And he said, it's Heartbreak Hotel. Mm. And then he said, Heartbreak Hotel, everyone thinks it's about uh, like the person singing, but it's about the bellhop. He's like, Heartbreak Hotel is about the bellhop and who has to be there and watch all these people coming through forever. Hmm. Not the way that I <laughs> thought about Heartbreak Hotel, but I, I like the concept. David Thomas is such a, a hero. I mean, it, it was just really interesting to see him like, so clearly on that same wave of this song being like very important. Um, he also did this, like there was this very shambolic and strange cover of surfer girl. So like beach did. boy surfer girl. Yes. Wow, and they cool. closed with kick out the jams, a very strange and shambolic version of kick out the jams. It sounds like quite a, quite a show. Um, yeah, it was really something. But that moment just uh, stuck out to me. I was just like, the the arguable like American equivalent of John Cale is out here also saying that uh, Heartbreak Hotel, keep your eye out. So it's one to watch. Mm. Well, always always a great one. Just uh, you know, I I can uh, I can do without it at this point from uh, from old John. Uh, another great one that I always love to hear that's on here right smack dab in the middle dying on the vine yes man this one just gets better and better 
to me. I've been chasing ghosts And I don't like it I wish someone would show me Where to draw the line I'd lay down my sword If you would take it And tell everyone back home I'm doing fine Well, it's just Gee, I mean, it just makes you think about uh, our friend, uh, Mr. Ratso Sloman. Larry Ratso Sloman from the program. Uh, just how how right Bob Dylan was when he said he's a great lyricist. That's right, uh, yeah. And, and how right John Cale was when he said he's a great lyricist. You and, killed it on this one, Ratso. I saw a picture. I was looking. I found a picture. I posted a picture today about uh, or of uh, Bob with uh, Doc Palmas. I found another picture. I, I didn't post it, but uh, there's a picture of Ratso and Doc Ratso Palmas just hanging Doc out. Palmas? Yep. So yeah. The whole man, the whole squad was all just that running around. That relates back to this Heartbreak Hotel thing too. It's just like these these ur texts of rock music still have a very palpable connection to all of this stuff. You know, we we're constantly banging this drum, but like you just keep seeing evidence of it the more you look. Um, and this is no exception. Um, I mean, just they all know some of the people who invented the 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 whole pr- style doc Palmas being right. one of them it's all it's all one story so like, it's all the same yeah story larry ratso sloman has the uh like just insane uh perspective of somebody who's friends been friends with the the people who invented it and then the people who invented doing fine art with it and everything in between and then and then the, the people who sit on the computer and talk about it yes. 50 years yeah, later of course he would come on to this show it's because like that that's uh there's not many of us who are in that deep and we're just getting as deep as we can from our sort of foggy perspective of very removed yeah, perspective. yeah but uh well, thank you, you know. thank you once again, Ratso, for your insider uh, uh, perspective and all of your contributions to this entire world. You're the realest of the real ones. Dying on the Vine is having a real moment on Twitter amongst uh, some pals of mine. I've, I've noticed it, it was like a, a funny tweet that was like, men 27 to 35 years old are, are tweeting the song Dying on the Vine. It's because they're not doing well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you need to check on them. <laughs> Uh, do a wellness check anytime you see someone playing uh, Dying on the Mind on their Spotify account. Yeah, Nick Newman, friend of the pod. <laughs> We're praying for everyone who is actively right now sharing it on an Instagram story that uh, that girl probably won't see. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> uh, sounds difficult. Um, sounds like Heartbreak Hotel. We are What do you think about him doing uh, style it takes in this context? Um, I like to hear that. You know, what am I going to say? 
But, well, no, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in it, you know, just kind of thinking back to what we talked about on the Drella thing, and especially considering John's extraordinarily petty and bitchy uh, letter that he included in the liner notes. Um, I think he's proud of the song. I, I think it's just probably that simple. It's just like he knows it's a good song. and um, Well, but this song is opposed to any, any of the other songs, right? Like, I, I wonder, especially like with Cordoba also um, from, from the Eno sessions, both of those records, you know, John kind of seems to have gotten shafted in terms of the credit. He seems to believe that at least. Um, so seeing those two songs in particular appear on fragments. Could suggest he had, or felt he had like more involvement in these ones. Yeah, greater ownership, ownership over them, exactly. Yeah. And trying to canonize them as John Cale songs as opposed to Lou Reed or, or Brian Eno songs, especially because both of those songs had just come out two years before this, right? And and these these shows were happening even even sooner after that. It's just yeah. an interesting kind of move on his part in, in the context of something that is so filled with so many just like stone cold, top of the charts kind of John Cale classics. You've got the style of days. You've got the style of taste You've got the style of taste You've got the style of taste Yeah. What do you think of the uh, music for New Society material on here? Oh, okay. So Chinese Envoy just kind of comes and goes for me. It's it's good and I like it. Um, but that song is always a little bit distant for me. But Close Watch and Thoughtless Kind, these are my favorite two things on on this uh, release. I think because they of of all the songs. Yeah, wow. yeah. Just because I I always have said and contended that Close Watch is I think best performed this way and i i think that's true i think you listen to this this way and then even later you hear hallelujah and it's really not hard to see why how they um these two artists like stand toe-to-toe with each other it's as good as as leonard cohen's best ballad i think this version of close watch is is a real stunner i and and yeah it's amazing gets gets to the heart of the song i think i think thinking back on it the 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 trouble i have with um with the music for new society like lp version is that it's like it's so atmospheric and so and like especially when the bagpipes are coming in at the end and those big huge drum like echoey you know kind of synthetic sounding drum hits um uh punctuating each verse it's like it it kind of almost feels distracting in a certain point to me it's a little um, conscious, self-consciously um, out, out there, um, deliberately kind of distressed sounding, you know. And this, yeah, it's this it's like kind jeans of like that come pre-ripped, so. exactly. One or you know, one of those T-shirts that has like a old, you know, a Dr Pepper logo on it. That you it can be stuck. Okay, well, <laughs> it's not quite Target <laughs> not T-shirt, bad, but <laughs> it's it's maybe like it's maybe like Comme de Garcon pre-distressed, sure. some kind yeah, of uh, that very fitting couture um, thing, but. It is no match for just this song performed this way. And, you know, the the other version of it with the big swelling orchestra, this is just neither of them hold a candle to this song simply performed because it's just... Um, Doesn't need anything. Yeah. The intimacy that 
can be afforded to the song only makes it more powerful. This is a love song, so hold on to somebody love. Never win and never lose. There's nothing much to choose between the right and wrong. Nothing lost and nothing gained. Still things aren't quite the same between you and me. Keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep a close watch on this heart of mine Fine piece of beef, you know. You don't. Yeah, you, you don't want to cover it up with. You don't put a one sauce on and, there, yeah. or Bernays sauce, or you don't even need to do the thing where they put the little crab cake on top and then the asparagus. It's just uh, no. Yeah, you just need salt it, pepper it. Style. Sure, yes, exactly. Filet Oscar, yeah. Uh, you just need the. You just need to cook it well. Let it sit yeah. for a few minutes. Cut into it. Mm, Rest delicious. it and yeah. It's um I'm hungry. It's, it's dinner like time. Nice yeah, you're, I guess you are. It's dinner time in Los Angeles in San Francisco. In California. in California. Up and down the coast. <laughs> Millions of people <laughs> are Those having houses dinner. Houses are are preheating the, their ovens or uh, calling uh the pizza man that's right. or looking at Uber Eats or I love the shit. I love the thoughtless kind uh, on here, which but is finally you say it. I mean, yeah. What do you mean? Finally, I say it. Have I, have I not expressed an appreciation for thoughtless? I just kind feel like this song has. I've been banging the drum for this song, like as like a, a, these two. I just wanted. Not that you haven't liked them, but like the reason why I I think I was always so like straight up like these are so great is because I had heard these versions as well as the others. And I knew these two pretty well, these two versions, from the beginning of when we started talking about all this stuff. And I think hearing these, the first time I heard them, just definitely like expanded my appreciation. This one in particular. Um, there are a couple other times when he's played it this way, or like you can find him uh, videos where he he's playing it on acoustic guitar. Uh, and it's just... I think this is probably my favorite John Cale song. Wow. Of all like, of them. Yeah, I think so. That's, I mean, it's a great and song. I, I don't think I've had a, it hasn't really had a dip since we started talking about John Cale and, uh, or since I heard it, I've always just thought this is a great, great song. Yeah, it's beautiful. And once again, I think as with uh, Close Watch, the the simplicity and really in this case the tunefulness cuz Thoughtless Kind is is a is a I mean the whole record Music for New Society is skeletal, uh, you know, and uh and atonal in many contexts or in many cases. Uh but here like he really turns this into a really kind of pleasant, beautiful kind of ballad uh a version of it just him on this sparkling kind of acoustic guitar. And uh, and a very clean, you know, invested, calm vocal take from him. It's uh, to me, I think it really uh, throws this song into relief and and brings it fully out of its shell here. Mm-hmm. 
If you grow tired of the friends you make In case you mean to say something else Say they were the best of times you ever had The best of times with a thoughtless kind It, it has some of my favorite lyrics. It just feels... It, it, it reminds me of Dark Eyes on Empire Burlesque. The, one of these moments when the artist seems to be uh, unexpectedly unadorned um, and, and vulnerable. And it has nothing to do with the, anything that's around it in their in their career at the moment or in the culture it's just this song that kind of you see them very clearly um it feels very honest hmm. and then broken hearts we have oh uh, yeah broken hearts from uh last day on earth which we're gonna talk about soon actually john's yeah. 1994 uh well collaborative record with bob newworth but uh, they'd already been kind of doing the um yeah exactly um they'd been doing some live performances of it at this point uh it's a fun song it's an interesting song you know um i uh, i need to spend more time with uh, last day on earth frankly Hearts are good for business these days Broken hearts are good for business always Same. But uh, it's uh, it's just a really nice ballad here towards the end uh, on this, again, this outtakes section. Um, we got to talk about uh, I'm Waiting for the Man also, which uh, I think you've pointed this out in the past. Uh, yes. Or maybe I'm remembering. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, go ahead and point it out again then. Well, there's several times when you can find this um, this type of version. This is where All My Friends comes from. Yeah, this is All My Friends. <laughs> this, is, this is All My Friends by the band LCD Sound System. Jimbo Murphy. I mean, this is like almost identical it's like right down to the fucking like little takes like a little takes uh that from here but I, what's amazing is that there's also a cover of all my friends later down the line by john kale by john kale uh, himself that's right there's nothing wrong with copying um first of all and it's even better if you can try to copy it from the direct from the source you know what uh picasso says right 
What does Picasso say? I was trying to just tee you up to go off about uh, the the Picasso uh, the, the that uh, thing that's going on at the Brooklyn Museum right now. I think that's already over. It Is was it over already. That, well, like that it closed in, in like two weeks. Times. I don't know if it closed, but like everybody, I mean, there was a piece in the New York Times that was basically like, um, like taking it behind the shed and blowing its brains out, justifiably so, for just how fucking stupid it is. <laughs> um, so I don't think anyone's talked about it since. Um, but I was actually thinking about the thing that uh, I posted it recently, this quote by Bob Dylan that uh, I like. The world don't need any more songs. As a matter of fact, if nobody wrote any songs from this day on, the world ain't going to suffer for it. There's enough songs for people to listen to if they want to listen to songs. For every man, woman, and child on earth, they could be sent probably each of them a hundred songs and never be repeated. It's true. Unless someone's going to come along with a pure heart and has something to say, that's a different story. I feel like that's a very informative piece of. Uh, Bob Dylan uh, ideology that can be applied to a lot of different things. Too many songs, um, Bob Dylan. Yeah, too many songs, but there's a caveat. It's just like there's nothing wrong with copying, and especially if you can bring something pure of heart and true to it, that's when it's, you know, you actually have done something new in a way. And I mean, that's not what he said exactly, but I think that, you know, it's pretty. <laughs> There's a reason why people are very moved by the song uh, "All My Friends," and this, uh, it, I think, it is a really good example of an inspired copy of something like this. This is that's how it's done. I mean, credit where it's due. It's just like that's a really inspired and and I think a, a great way to to make a song of your own. I'll have to say this whole fucking shtick again just when we get to that. The Rock Palace performance. Well, it's uh, we've got we got a few months. Anything? Uh, anything? I mean, out, uh, Amsterdam is a nice uh, little uh, little treat here in the outtake section. That's a that's a good one. Couple versions of Fear. We like we talked about the Clear to Loon. Paris on strings is really nice. Uh, Antarctica yeah, and, also. Antarctica starts here. Um, Fantastic stuff. It's all good. It's all it, yeah. It's it's good music. Don't I really care. like the the uh, the album cover. Yes, this seems like a very you kind of album cover. Uh, why? Why is that? Because it's just black and white and, and a fancy little serif font. I think that it's actually well. The version I'm looking at on on streaming is a sort of bluish. They turned gray. it yeah blue, but the original was just white with black text yeah. on it, and, and it quotes it was designed, uh, Shakespeare. Yeah, it, it says. Um, it's a line from Macbeth. Banquo, it will be rain tonight, first murderer, let it come down. William Shakespeare. Um, the cover, I think, was designed by um, famous conceptual artist Joseph Kosith. Okay. News to me. So, that, so now you know. Joseph um, Kosith. Sort of tech, yeah, Kosith. 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 Um, sort of a, a very text based um artist sort of these big monolith things uh with text on them that's kind of his deal kind of like banksy kind of like um <laughs> barbara kruger or something but like a little bit more fancy. mark echo 
boy. Uh, not like that. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, you know, so the regular record uh, ends uh, 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 on. I mean, I mean, it's can well, we say it's, it's hallelujah? The, I, well, yes, it's hallelujah. Can we say it's the definitive version of hallelujah? I think it basically is, as far as uh, Shrek and <laughs> anything else is concerned. As far as DreamWorks I mean, animation. No, but I I think it is. A great, it's maybe it is the best version. I think. I mean, we love Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen does Leonard Cohen songs better than anyone, except maybe this one is just one that John Cale, for some reason, has the like he just wanted it more. As yeah, they say in sports. Well, it's a it, as as was memorably uh, explained to us by our, our <laughs> That's buddy not Ratso. True, actually, either, but uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's just uh, <laughs> it's fine. As Ratso explained to us, uh, Leonard had faxed John every verse of Hallelujah when John explained he wanted to start covering it, and it's like a I don't know fifteen verses long or something. It's just is long, and this is a sort of a condensed, shortened version of the song that uh, everyone that followed, including, you know, like Jeff Buckley, which obviously uh, most people will be most familiar with, um, kind of lifted this this section of the song or this kind of uh, uh, formation uh, of the tune. Um, so it really has kind of, even if other people are going to be more familiar with other kind of lyrical, you know, kind of interpret, or excuse me, vocal interpretations of the song, John has kind of dictated the lyrical content of it just with this performance alone. And uh, for my money, I mean, I don't know. Leonard is so we, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to do some Leonard good. episodes I mean, at some point. But there's something I about this song from like John. Maybe we should just do a whole Leonard year or two. Yeah, I feel like well, maybe we should. I don't even know why we don't just do that one next. Kind of thing. Well, all right, let's, we'll save it for. Uh, well, that's the that's the next next one, maybe. Sure. Um, I don't know that. Whatever we'll t- <laughs> we'll talk about this later. We'll- Leonard Cohen will be an appearing on Jokerman podcast at some point. There's no some question point. about that. Um, but I don't know. I just I think there's something about John. John just has a an an innocence Gravitas? to him. I think. Well, no. I, oh, I see. I think innocent. for Hallelujah, yeah, there's yeah, an innocence yeah. here that John has that like Leonard really has the gravitas, and and John has his own type of gravitas, right? But there's sort of a, a you know almost a. I think to to use the word again from from earlier, a purity, almost a naivete that John brings to this song. That um, you know, what's so great about the Leonard version is that it is this like all knowing, you know, commanding presence from one of the great you know uh, poet warriors of the 20th century, and that deep you know froggy kind of intonation that he has. But John just cuts to the core of the song and really beautifies it, right? Like lives in the, the fundamental beauty of it. And that is really affecting to me for whatever reason. Yeah. He, he did. Sometimes it takes somebody who's a little bit outside of it to edit the thing. And there is so much that was there of raw material from what we heard of that story. Um, it's so really what this is, is not officially in any way uh, at all, but a, a collaborative version of the song like it's not just him covering it it's it's the lines that john cale felt were necessary and important to include and so they're the ones that he has this emotional connection to um 
and only those ones. You know, if you have yeah. like 50 v- different variations of each line, all these stanzas that you could use, he had a lot to go through and could cherry pick out these ones. And all the ones he picks are great. I think his version of the song and how it flows is um, very sophisticated and feels very true. So, yeah, and, and just playing it on a piano. There's nothing better than that, folks. Also, with um, with close watch, uh, my other favorite moment on this whole record is this is a love song. So hold on to someone you love. Yes, yeah, great little uh, ad lib from him there at the beginning. It's great before the saddest song of all time. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, on uh, Hallelujah, it's just it's a really striking note to end on um and like this is the one cover right on the entire set um and it, it it's very purposefully done you know it's not i guess i mean heartbreak hotel is a cover or whatever but that's barely even a cover at this point um, it's a john kale song <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. uh it uh it, you know the, the choice of hallelujah especially here at the end of this this uh this enormous career spanning retrospective on his part i think is um you know very impactful Respect. And then it just kind of fades away into, I love the little... Rain. Well, yeah, exactly. You lose a little bit of this with the, uh, the expanded set, but yeah, it just ends on this rain and, and thunderstorm. No, that's, um, that's a fantastic little touch to uh, send you out on. Let it come down. That's right. Three stars. John Cale. Fragments of a rainy season. Yeah, for me. Three, three stars as well. This is one of my favorite live albums. Just one of the great live albums in general, yeah. The same way that I, I feel about Triplicate. I'll, I'll say again, it's just, it's like so much right there. It's almost as long in terms of song numbers. Almost. The difference being that these are John Cale songs performed by John Cale. As yes, for the most part. But, but <laughs> something about just the, um, the air of respect given to himself here. You know, that, that was and remains like the most kind of emotionally affecting part of his book to me is that comment he makes about when he was finally kicking drugs and it reached rock bottom of his experience with drugs and alcohol of having this uh, realization that he respected himself so little. He realized later with great sadness that he, he wasn't really giving himself respect. Um, and you see that corrected and healed here, I think, uh, that he's able to put himself at the center of his own world and not feel embarrassed by it. Just do it and do it really well. As it deserves. Well, we're back at it, folks. Yeah, here we are. Into the night. We're into the, into the back half on uh, the Lou and John series at this point very few lou records uh left uh certainly some more stop from John. saying that i i, it's I true. just want to it's it's i don't it's it'll happen and it'll they'll be gone i mean it's just a uh, it feels like how this this is how the 90s really happened you know it's just we were in the 80s and now we're just kind of like oh i guess it's where's them starting to be in the middle of the 90s now that's right i'm just all, all the, the reason i say it is just savor it you know is you, you only got so it's not everyone is uh is, is is bob dylan here in terms of late career output so you gotta you gotta enjoy uh enjoy every sandwich <laughs> right right Jokerman. Jokerman. <laughs>
secret chord that David played and pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing. strong but you needed proof you saw her bathing on the roof the beauty and the moonlight overthrew you she tied you to a kitchen chair she broke your throne she cut your hair and from your lips she drew the Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 